0: Hello everybody, this is Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 23, from the British Society of Dowsers. I'm Graham Gardner. Now this episode features a talk by Robin Heath, who was one of the speakers at the Autumn 2010 Earth Energies Group meeting. Now, Robin is well-known in Earth mystery circles as an author and researcher specialising in sacred geometry, archaeoastronomy and the geodetic systems of the landscape. He's a devotee of the work of Alexander Tom and has carried on Tom's research by surveying many ancient sites around the country. His latest book, Bluestone Magic, focuses mainly on the sites of his home area of West Wales, which of course is where the Preseli bluestones used in Stonehenge came from and Robin shared some of his latest research with us. Robin is an engaging and entertaining speaker, and although he made extensive use of PowerPoint pictures and diagrams during the presentation, I don't think the lack of those detracts too much from this talk. Uh, if you check out his website at skyandlandscape.com, you will find several pages in the Articles & Research section that puts this talk into a better context. If you look particularly for Pet Rivan, a 5,500 year old secret, discovery of a working Soli lunar calendar device at Karnak, and megaliths and their location on the landscape, that just about covers all the things in this talk. So uh, I hope you enjoy it, and without further ado, here's Robin. I uh,
1: have quite a long association with the British <laughs> Society of Downing. We have a West Wales branch, and uh, believe it or not, with uh, and you might think there were only three members and two of those are sheep. But in <laughs> fact, we, should, and we have about 130 people maximum to draw in my swells. So it's quite a big area for dancing. And of course, I'm wearing a suit, which I'm, again, it's a really overdressed, but it's a part of the BSD connection because in 1980 something, when I gave my first lecture in a BSD group, everybody was called Arthur or Hubert uh, there were no women or if they were they were made wearing men's clothes and um, it was a really fearsome sort of experience of traditional Britain because they were very traditional and you come here see now it's very healthy now 30 years old there's women here they're not dressed up in drag
2: there are,
1: there are men here and you're all sort of getting on and doing something really positive and uh, okay well they never, you know um, I want to, because this I think these are more of a sharing of people's work than anything of profound intellectual uh, stuff. I mean, that, all of that's in the book. So I want to just show you what I've been doing, really, and and the implications for for your subject. And there are some. Um, I think the most obvious one is that the uh, if you are involved in any form of pursuit like dowsing, you're going to eventually meet. Male and female energies in ver- their various forms. If you're an astronomer or an astrologer, you'll meet those as the sun and the moon. Uh, and if you're un- into going to sacred sites, you'll know that often they're connected. The guy Little would say always connected with underground water. Um, now, Trish, my partner and I, uh, are very living in West Wales. Are very interested in earth healing and earth energy and the energy of the land. And you, over the years, you become attuned by visiting sites to what's these are about. So I'm going this is extreme history we're now going to do. It's the sort of history that's so extreme that it, it's called prehistory, and archaeologists don't want to know what aspect of this, which is that people were actually quite clever. It doesn't, fit, it doesn't fit with the Darwinian, or it doesn't fit their model of prehistory at all. So I want to present you with some information that you're going to go out with from this and tell all your friends. Uh, And even the Daily Mail readers. And they're going to, and they're going to, and they're going to suddenly have something sticking their crawl that they can't deal with. And hopefully some of them will know an archaeologist or two. um, And maybe, maybe something will change long after I'm pushing up daisies. So uh, let's have a look at this subject. An enormous amount of knowledge acquired by early man has irretrievably vanished and only odd pieces come occasionally to light. Often to be received with incredulity. Megalithic man has, however, left his part of his knowledge recorded in stone. It is for us to read the records. Now, writing can take many forms, and I actually believe the circles and the shapes and the geometries of those are a form of writing. I mean, it's a short circuit for lots of words. A hexagon is quite good. It tells you all sorts of things, particularly if you're a symbolist or an astrologer. It means lots of things. So if you say I'm having a bit of a sort of octagonal day, it means you're manifesting or you're doing something fairly concrete. Whereas if you're having a sort of, um, should we say, a heptagon day, seven-sided day, it probably means that you might be smoking illegal substances around the back of the bike sheds.
2: Do
1: you get my guess? I mean, these shapes have meaning. And, they, and on the landscape, they form meaning to people who visit them, and no doubt people who created these shapes on the land either consciously, unconsciously, or a mixture of the two, put these things on the landscape, and it's for us to decode them. It's no you say they have no meaning at all, which is the archaeological view, or I don't believe it because, basically, um, well, you're not an archaeologist. Let's look at that. This man is an absolute poop. As archaeologists, we're often accused of being a closed shop and of not accepting new ideas about archaeology. I <coughs> don't think this is the case at all. Archaeologists are perfectly willing to accept new ideas, providing they are framed in the absence of archaeology.
2: <laughs>
1: in other words, you have to be an archaeologist before you can put forward new ideas about archaeology. <laughs> now, I have a great deal of time for this guy. He did lots of wonderful work. He's a great artist. did all the sketches of the Avery and West Kent fires, uh, but he had a closed mind about lots of things when radiocarbon dating came in, he said, this this is archaeologically (laughs) inacceptable. Okay. So, um, you can pick up on the web now the film about Tom. It's about an hour, just under an hour long. You type in BBC, uh, BBC Chronicle Alexander Tom or Cracking the Stone Age Code. You've got 45 minutes of a wonderful film made by the chap who did Hero- went on to do Horizon and other uh, things. So the music's by Delia Derbyshire, for those of you who are into Doctor Who. <laughs> As archaeologists, we are constantly beset by the lunatic fringe.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Well, poor man. And then, okay, the problem in archaeology is when to start laughing. Now, that actually is a lunatic occupation. People who are... Uh, mentally unstable often can't stop laughing so there's a sort of conflict in this man and he did more to destroy Tom's career at the end of his life although he took Tom to to heart a lot at the beginning but uh, he was not a great help and then finally Richard Atkinson who wrote probably still the best book on on the archaeology of Stonehenge all of these are said in the documentary these are just quotes from that documentary okay Uh, Let's look, first of all, at something that we all know and love, which is a sunrise or a sunset. It's an awesome experience. We go out there and we go to a special place sometimes to watch the sunset. Malvern Hills is a particularly good place to do that. Uh, It's not bad for sunrises, too. Um, And there are all sorts of places throughout Britain where that's a very nice thing to do. And you know very well that at this latitude the sun doesn't come straight up and overhead as it would in (coughs) Singapore, but it goes sideways as it rises. And there's the angle which is the objective bit which I have to measure in order to then find out where the sun rose in prehistoric times. Once I know that the sun rose more to the north in prehistoric times I can do these calculations to do that. And you don't need to worry about that just like you don't open a tin of beans with your teeth. You buy you open it. You just go out and buy what you need. Well, there's all sorts of software to do that, that conversion to, to the actual angle. If you were to do that angle and find that there was a, a, a Whopping great standing stone there, or a stone circle. You'd be quite, and this—you were stood on a stone circle. You would say this stone circle you stood on—that's where I am now—is aligned to that megalith or that standing stone because the sun rose there, and that gives you some clue of the date and direction of erection of the observation site. That's pretty simple stuff, but unfortunately, it's not acceptable to any archaeologist to say any of that. If I <coughs> I go around just finding loads of these and measuring them, because I've got a theodolite and I used to teach surveying, so I'm in a pretty good position to do that. Providing you've got that piece of kit and you can measure that angle, then you're in a very strong position. Unfortunately, very few people have that kit, and they have to rely on less accuracy in these angles. There are ways around that with Google Earth and other things. Anyway, let's move on. So you all know that the sun at the midsummer rises at its up in the northeast, probably a little cold room in your house like a down toilet upstairs, the windows is northeast and you notice that when you're in there during the uh, summer that uh, it often has the sun on it early in the morning and similarly if it was facing northwest it would have the sun in the evening and then midwinter it rises down here and it's only up for a few few hours and it sets down there. Now these angles are very very fixed for the latitude, they vary and as you go further north these widen it's 40 degrees each side of east and west uh, between summer and winter, uh, more or less the latitude I'm standing on today, the land of latitude. If you go to Scotland, it's a right angle, where I'm going straight after this talk. But unfortunately, I'd have to spend six months there to confirm that. <laughs> um, if you go down to Brittany, the angle of the midsummer sunrise and sunset is the angle, the a smaller angle of a 3-4-5 Pythagorean triangle. And at Brittany, in Carnac, we find the 3-4-5 triangle all over the place used to monitor the midsummer sun. Right, it's the only place in the northern, latitude in the northern hemisphere where you, a 3-4-5 triangle, a right-angled triangle makes the angle of the extreme sunrises and sunsets. So if you make a rectangle in Brittany of dimensions 3 by 4, Pointing north, south, east, and west, then the diagonals c- cover all of those. You sat in the middle of that, uh, from each corner of the, of the device in Brittany, the rectangle you make, each diagonal would give you one of uh, two of the extreme sunrises. <coughs> Therefore, when we find that rectangle built in Brittany, within two miles of the theoretical spot where it should be, we, we, you start to think well this is 4000 BC we're talking about I mean Stonehenge is like a futuristic compared to 4000 BC and so that's the, that's, that's the set that we find but no that, apparently that's not convincing evidence now here's my local megalith, it's called Lekha Dribbeth, which in Welsh means tri, uh, big slab on a tripod Welsh is such a poetic language <laughs> Um, and you see the axis of symmetry of the monument, and there are two little triangles, one on the left, which is currently occupied by solar flare, and the one on the right, which will be very shortly as the sun sets, and the last flash of the sun, this is the sea horizon here, that yellow is actually the sea, the sun on it, and it moves from one to the other, or it would have done in, in 2850, which is the date the archaeologists say this is built. This is not in any book, apart from that one at the back.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs> okay, so this, and it's on my website, but I mean, this site does that. And you'd be hard-pressed not to say that that, money would, that might be deliberate. So let's have a look what else happens. If you look, I'll stand on the capstone, which is something you mustn't do at home, and, you, and, you <laughs> watches, and you're there at Midsummer, you can see the sun, not only does it set into the sea horizon, but you notice there's some lumps. So there's either a big tsunami going on out there, you see there, particularly, there's a, like a snake-shaped thing, and then it starts to go up the side of this colossal great big lump. These are real photos, they're not photoshopped. Take it with a telephoto lens, and it disappears into the side of what is obviously a big mountain in Ireland. And there it is below. That's where it sets today, and that's the final flash when it set in um, when the monument was built. So you get a map of Ireland, you do a horizon profile, you measure this angle, and uh, do all the calculations, and you discover that, the monument's aligned to that. London Quilla in the, in the Wicklow Hills is the highest hill. And that's quite cool, because there's, there's a long alignment. It's something like 91 miles. And you can't see that mountain, except under exceptional viewing condition. It's always there, of course, but the refraction means sometimes it, it's right below the horizon, and sometimes it lifts up along the other mountains in Ireland. So you've got to be there, and that's why the book's called Stone Magic. You have to be there at the right time the right place, and you have to have the right intention, which is you have to know what, why you're going there. And that's the de- one definition of magic, and I rather like that definition. And we should apply it to most things we do in our life. Then. So here's what the archaeologists currently think, and he is the arch uh, archaeoastronomer in, in academia. He's almost not giving himself a job with this. There is no evidence of the use of astronomical observations for practical purposes, such as the determination of the time of year. The idea that distant horizon features such as notches could be used to pinpoint the motions of the sun and moon to a few minutes of art have now been discounted. Five revels, astronomy before the telescope. Now this wouldn't be bad in an academic journal. The problem is, and this is a, an insidious problem that you must fight at all costs. This is a popular book. It was remained in before it was written. Patrick Moore edited it. It's a big book and it was for five, you could get it for five quid, it was and a large parts of that book are superb. But the first chapter is about prehistoric astronomy. This guy wrote it, and he writes here, these have been discovered, but I don't know where, the where, how have they been discovered. Because it's a popular book, there's no chance of you getting to the background of where that remark's coming from. You don't know the history, you don't know what he's done with this subject. So it's a real problem. So whereas I write an article for an archaeological magazine... And I used to be a research scientist, so I know how to do that. And I can do all the references, I can do everything to the to the, to the letter. I send off that off, peer review means that they send it to their mates, who are like him, who say, well, you can't possibly write this, you can't have this, we don't like this. We don't even believe this hypothesis. Back it comes, we're covered in Reading, and you're. The, the, we can't penetrate their camp, but they can write this sort of driven... In, in, um, you mustn't edit that out where it's <laughs> <laughs> Because this is dribble. And I know it's dribble because I've spent the last 25 years doing nothing else uh, at sites than investigate that there is evidence for the use of astronomical observations for practical purposes, such as determination of the time of year. Here's summer to the day. It's not quite to the day, but it's, There is, there are sites in Peppermintshire that do it to the day. And you use the equinox for the day. But anyway, the idea that you've got that angle, and they knew that angle, there's more. Here's the site we've just been looking at. I noticed the tumulus there. It's a big barrow actually. It's huge. And it's down a dip. And then there's a settlement here called the Gaia. And I noticed they were in a straight line years ago and didn't think anything of it. But when you join it all up and do the sums, you notice that that's where the moon set from Gaia at its extreme point of its eighteen-year, eight and a half-year cycle. So, that if you were stood at Gaia, you would see the moon come down the side of Lacordaire and slip into the horizon once every eighteen point six years. Now, that's magic, because if you're not there, as Alexander Thomas says in the chronicle. Well if you missed it you just have to wait. <laughs> and 2024, you guys, you've got to be there. And that's I was there in two thousand and six and that's that's a real photograph. There's the photograph I actually took with a digital camera. I'm not a photographer, and it was cloud I didn't think I was gonna see anything. It was very cloudy and raining a bit. But there's the actual shot I the moon was well down on the horizon, so it was going reddish. Um, and that's the black and white of it and all I've done is I've substituted that, that bit there over the top of the monument which you can clearly see here you can even see the little dent in the stone and the moon is slipping down there so I confirmed I had to walk 86 feet to correct for the change in the earth's tilt I had to walk 86 feet north of the site I did all that in advance it was all set up and there's a photograph of it so we're monitoring the sun and the moon, and why are we doing that? Now, dolmens have been very, very little looked at from an astronomical point of view. Then there are lots of them in Wales. Very happily, within about 15 miles of where I live, we've got about five stonkingly good ones and ten of their really <coughs> ones. This is Carrie Coiton. It used to be called Carrie Coiton Arthur, and they dropped the Arthur bit because they're too serious. But in fact, from a tourism point of view, it would be far better if they'd kept the name Arthur in there. Look at Tin Yes. You know, Arthur's toilet, you know, Arthur's public car park, Arthur's litterboard, Arthur, you know, everything's got Arthur well if this this should be called Coit and Arthur, which means Arthur's Coit. Now this is a site, it's sat up on a river estuary, you can see the river Nevin there, and it looks, it sits and there's a horribly estate of modern bungalows just here. Should never have been allowed to be built. Up. That, like, that does just what that do Kaduta does in a different way. Midsummer sun sets on the sea and it shines through that hole there. And you can see the top of the capstone has been scalloped to fit those stones rather than And there's, that's called a Theodolite. It should be called a Theodore Heavy, but it's, 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 uh, <laughs> it's. It means servant of God. So that's yeah. rather nice, isn't it? You see? Surveyors don't know that but uh, <laughs> certainly winky there's, those of you who are into Forbes that's a picture that Diane Cooper would die for no doubt but that's
2: <laughs> 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 she's not a it
1: this is our sacred mountain at home this is Carl and this is shot from the site we just looked at so this is the major standstill of the moon again but instead of being a rise or a set this is the lowest the moon ever gets in the summer. And at the lowest point, it gets obscured temporarily by the three bumps on the top of the mountain there. And then it appears and like a silver wheel, it rolls across Carningley Common, which is perfectly shaped to accommodate the shape of the moon as it in midsummer it's very low the full moon. You all know that. But you don't consciously know it, but you do know it that the moon at midsummer, when it's full, is always the opposite of the sun at the at the other time of the year. The sun at midsummer is high in the sky, and the full moon is always going to be low. Did you know that? Good. Well, here's an example of a site that works using that: that the moon never comes any lower than, than this in 18 years. So this is a detector for that magic thing that de- allows you to determine when eclipses are going to occur. That's two sites five miles apart, doing this, same. none of it's in any astronomy uh, or archaeological work. Here's another site, thought to be Bronze Age much later. This is five tombs, sort of mini, mini-dogmans, arranged radially, rather like the old aircraft prop engines are. Uh, they sort of radially displayed, but uh, I started to measure this one and Trish my partner who's very sensitive and intuitive spotted the fact that that stone there and that stone there were very um, should we say they were sympathetic to, to, each, other. to each other that's needle rock which uh, is, sounds like a great title for an album and this <coughs> one that looks a bit sort of druidic is part of the um, front entrance of the uh, capstone of which the bit the top bit is lying is one here so you get the light out and you, you wait and you go to the right place at the right time and the right action and you watch, that's this year's Midsummer Sunset that's why I couldn't publish my book till after Midsummer because I wanted to get as many photos as I could so there's the same position and there's the sun setting into the um, that's today that's, it's doing that today, now In the Bronze Age, I've not made any correction there, in the Bronze Age, it would be going, set in here. So, you know, you go home disappointed, because you think, well, that's not an alignment. It is today. And that's when you need to know the history of the site, you need to know what's around the site. Because 200, about 400 feet from here, over in the field here, is one of the biggest standing stones in Pembrokeshire. It's full of cut marks. Absolutely covered with, looks like someone's had the thumb in soft clay, and there are some signs of other marks on the stone. And from that stone, you would get exactly what's reproduced there for the date for 2800 BC, which is a thousand years earlier than the archaeological date for this site. So I put it to you that that stone was the first thing on the site. It's fallen over now, it's recumbent, as they say, rather like me on a Sunday afternoon. And you will find that if you go to this side, and the, the gates being put there for your benefit now, and you don't have to battle with being killed by traffic and stuff, you can get straight in the field. If you go over to the northwest by Dinas Island, which is what this shape here is, you'll see that stone lying in the grass, and that's perfectly set up to take that photograph. Let's go to the biggest monument that one everyone knows about, in that was you all know of that monument, the Ermin's Cow's photograph. Very rarely do they really show how beautifully poised that capstone is. It's 45 tons of beautifully poised capstone, sat on top of three, about three square inches actually, supporting the whole lot. Uh, and it's a complex site, and the only big excavation that's ever happened, it was William Brown's before the war, but it's been visited, it's the must-have visit for all archaeologists. No signs of any body has ever been found in it, and yet it's a tomb, family, And there's no astronomy connected with it, so it's right for me to go and have a look at it. So just in the field below never reported by astronomers, not by archaeologists, so I mix up the two. We find a stone, which is a huge stone in the field just below Pentium, and it's got what are undoubtedly the biggest man-made cut and ring marks, or cut marks, I've ever seen. I mean, I can put this into my armpit, that one, and that one about to my elbow. And it's sat looking at Pentreevan. though well, that one is. That one is looking up to Pentreevan. This is a separate stone. Um, stone is absolutely so level, I can set my theodolite up on it. I can adjust my theodolite with minimum adjustment to make a perfectly level platform there, and that's looking at Pentry Man. And these eyes are looking at something else on the horizon. So this is great, because this is... No, you would think it's 200 metres or 400 metres from Pen Tree You would think, as every archaeologist has been through this site, they would think someone would have noticed this as a man-made, prehistoric thing on, the, on, the, on this stone. But no. So, from the stone, that's Pentrivan, the capstone. You're looking at it um, sideways on there, there's the big capstone. You've got these four big outcrops, the volcanic plugs. Carmenian Owen is their name, and this is the most uh, southerly one. And uh, from the stone, couldn't be simpler really. You go back, the date of this is 3500 BC. Do the sums, and the sun slides down the side of that um, outcrop and into the chamber. I'm just waiting for a winter solstice sunset, where I can go and confirm. I was here, yes, I knew the winter sunset, more or less, but I've never actually measured it. And that's why you should always go there when it's sunny and it's winter and do these things. So what you do is you go up the top and you look down the other way. Because you you calculated the angle. You go up to the site and you look down the other way. There's Penn then. So there's the actual alignment that calculates, and there's the tree with the stone with the cut marks is blocked from view here. But you Because I'm at the bottom of the alignment, you can see that's the position. And I wanted to go and confirm that that was true when you go around the opposite angle. This is shot with a digital camera through the theodolite. And then, just as it happened, I lifted the theodolite up, and we found something else. We went into the Bronze Age. We went from extreme history. To quite old prehistory. Because that same alignment when you lift the field light like up goes right through the front door of Castet Hendries, which is reputedly an Iron Age village, but which the astronomy suggests is older. Because from there you see the winter, midwinter sunset. So we go up to one of the other outcrops and we look down, and there's the stone with the bullet holes in it that looks like a dodging car, and there's a pentry OK, it's not telephoto lenses. This is what you would actually see from one of these outcrops. And there's a, that's, a, that's a telephoto of, of the two eyes, and there's the tree we saw. And that's what would happen to the minor standstill set. Going into the end one of those outcrops in 3500. Stunning that this stone is placed just to do those, both those tasks. And it's got a level platform. It's even got two big eye marks, looking more or less well in this direction, and the other stone is directed to Pentrina. So there's three dollars all doing something with major moon events on the, the extreme positions of the moon, and the midwinter or midsummer sun, sunrise or sunset. So, what's to be done about this? Well, I, as always, Dr. Ewan MacKay is amazingly knowledgeable and took t- anti-Tom, but Tom Bashing was, he hated, and was a good supporter of Tom, and he said that archaeology prides itself in adopting a multidisciplinary approach, yet it was not able to adequately understand or discuss, let alone take on board the ideas put forward by Professor Tom. This must mean... there is something missing from the education and training of archaeologists. And voila, that's what's missing. There's no (coughs) maths, no no sacred geometry, no traditional arts, the quadrivium, no astronomy. And so the modern archaeologists wouldn't know it if they fell over it. And they're not looking for it because their tutors are telling them not to. If it did exist and you were to fall over it, just ignore it and that brings me to geometry there's all sorts of interesting geometries out there half of all stone circles are not circles and quite a lot of the egg ones are formed around a 3, 4, 5 triangle you make the triangle it makes itself, you don't need to make the right angle it happens automatically if you peg the 4 side out and you have a 3 and a 5 side on either end you bring them round and it makes the right angle automatically it's a whole number way of making a right angle and you get these two angles, which are prevalent at all megalithic sites, lunar and solar in Brittany, and up to the Orkneys as well. And the three radii define, it's a toilet seat, if you really want to know. I mean, There's a semicircle at the back, and then you take a rope from that point to here, and it makes this big arc to there. And a rope, you take the same rope over to there, and it makes this arc. And then if you have a peg there, the rope will automatically make the finishing tight circle, which is R3. So you get the semicircle, which you fixed, you define that radius, and then after that, all the others are fixed for you. Well, there's sacred geometry in action, and there are about 30 of these uh, that are in good condition, um, up and down the seaboard of Western Europe. And Britain's got its, more than its fair share of them you can see this is the vesica uh, shape made by a flattened circle which is a semicircle and all you have to do is put three divide a line into three there's one division there's the other but then divide the middle bit into half all standard stuff with ropes and pegs and then all you have to do is take a rope from here ground that peg to there and just walk the dog and it disengages from that peg there does that long flattened bit hits the peg there Back to back to the radius of the semicircle. There are about thirty of those. They have lots of interesting properties, which we cannot cover tonight. But some of them are in my book, plug number two. And there's the two types, main types of flat circle, One of them is based on the hexagon, and the other one is based on the division of the line by three. But essentially, they have the same fundamental structure. You've all heard of castle rig. One of my favourite sites. Well, from there, the hexagon, each part of the hexagon has stones located exactly on the point of the hexagon. So if people say this is all rubbish about the geometry, you just show them a map of, an accurate map of Castle Rigg. And you get some sunrise as well. Stonehenge has geometry in it. It looks like a rather disappointing pile of stones from the end on, because you go to the site, you pay your money, An English Heritage is a fantastic milk cow for English Heritage and I love them to bits because they've opened it up now you can go and walk in the stones. you pay them another 10 or 12 quid and um, there we have a a monument that you go on the site and there's absolutely no way on site you can see a picture of it from above so how can you possibly evaluate something from a geometric perspective if you can't see from above you just see this pile of of stones which are rather dilapidated looking because sarsen wears like mad and, and lots of it's pot marks are worn with rainwater and gully holes and the blue stones have largely disappeared and they've got a dreadful patina on them now so they don't look a bit like the stonehenge blue stones look when they're polished which they must have been in fact Richard Atkinson who we quoted earlier said of all the stones of stone he- in the megalithic world These are the hardest and most polished he's ever found. And the best stone, did you know that? The best stone on Stonehenge, the stone you would die for, is a blue stone, which is a lintel. And it's the size of this table, twice the size of this table, with big holes like that stone we just looked at, cut marks in the bottom where it fitted on top of a, a plinth. It was lifted in 1958. It's polished beautifully, far better than in the it was washed off, photographed, and put back in the ground. So no one can see it. There's photographs of it, and there's one in the book, so through. <laughs> but nobody has seen that stone for half a century. So let's move on. There's a job, ge- a big piece of geometry, is that there were once... Four stones defining a rectangle. And Orby calls it a near perfect rectangle, five for twelve. And I'm, I'm, most people who have met my work will know what's coming next, but fundamentally, why is that in a temple that has the most northerly moonset indicated along that line, uh, at right angles to the heel stone and avenue, and the midsummer sunrise is on, is between the heel stone and a stone that's missing on the other side of it now well, the answer is why is Stonehenge placed at the latitude where the m- most northerly moonset and the midsummer sunrise were right angles to each other does that deliberate? could they measure latitude the gentleman's question about this morning about how did they know the size of the earth this is a profound question that you asked this morning because it's central to development of the geomantic and uh, the geodetic aspect of this work is that for what you can't do landscapes obeying without astronomy. So if you understand the astronomy of these extreme historic, historic <coughs> people 300 and generations ago, if you understand their astronomy, you might be halfway to understanding how they were able to measure latitude as accurately as they evidently did. But this is it. You've got moon and sun all over the There's 56 holes in the oldest circle, which is the perfect number to monitor the moon and also measure eclipses. I'll go into the detail of that, but that's, that is the case, and um, Fred Ho- Professor Fred Hoyle came to the same conclusion in the 50s. Um, there's, uh, we've also got the Sarsen Circle, which is 30 stones, uh, as Chris pointed out this morning. perfect. One of them's half the width of the others, which is 29 and a half, which makes me think that's representing the lunar month of 29, the phase month of 29 and a half. I could go on, I won't go on so that's basically what we've got there and you can do interesting things with that shape because the diagonal is 13 so if you make a, a 5, 12, 13 triangle out and you bring the 13 side down you can say if that's 12 lunar months that's short of a year by 11 days and 13 lunar months is in excess of the year by 18 and a half days where would you have to run a line to make its length equal to the length of the solar year in days? And the answer is geometrically quite sacred, because you take the 13th side and drop it down to the 3, 3 and 2, and that length is exactly the right uh, number of lunations in the year, and consequently uh, you have calibrated the a year into the moons, you've integrated the sun and the moon, but this is in time terms, you've now integrated the calendar, such that you can make the moon and the sun, you can forecast for a star, you can predict the tides, you can predict each phase of the moon, uh, and this is a simple technique for doing it. In addition, those of you who have studied numerology at all will know that three But that here we've got 12, which is noted to be a solar number, Thirteen, I don't need to tell anyone, is a lunar number. It was unlucky. About as unlucky as being a woman in the Middle Ages when it was <laughs> deemed unlucky. And, um, and then five, the number of marriage in Pythagorean consciousness in that Pythagorean terms, And three and two is the first male and the first female number. So we have got a female side up on this side and a male side down on this side. And the fact that when you do that, you end up with the perfect marriage of the sun and the moon, I find is a beautiful construct. And you can make it on your own back lawn, a piece of rope, and hold it And there's a bigger one, that someone gives you to it. They have a bigger back lawn than I have. There's Stonehenge, there's Lundy Island, which is exactly west of Stonehenge. The middle of Lundy Island is exactly west of Stonehenge. Not Lundy Island, is west of Stonehenge. The middle of Lundy Island, the centre of Lundy Island, is exactly west of Stonehenge. And the Bluestone site, where this came from, and where the stones were taken to Stonehenge the smaller stones it has to be said, came from here we've got Colley Island which was well we could go on, it's in other books but I'm trying to make a point here that large scale landscape geometry uh, was part of look what we can do whether you think this exists or not is entirely up to you but the units in length are very interesting it's two and a half thousand times bigger than the rectangle in Stonehenge. So that's two and a half thousand times the dimension of that rectangle we saw in in Stonehenge. If you want a bigger one in Britain, just join the capital cities up. If you join Cardiff, Edinburgh and London up, and then look at the shape, it's two and a half times bigger again than this. So... uh, uh, and it's north, south, east, and west. Cardiff, London's east, west, and um, Cardiff to Edinburgh is north, south. Just thought I'd throw that in.
2: Just
1: a little bit simple geomancy. There's questions like in all these there of implications about who knows about that? Why was Cardiff picked as the capital of Wales? When nobody in Wales wanted Cardiff. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, had stuck a big castle there with a, a black tower, and there's all sorts of Masonic stuff going on in Cardiff, and there's a mound. And um, Edinburgh, we don't need to go, I don't want to get involved in the geodetics of Edinburgh, which are fearsome. Um, but there we are. So, I've laid the table and shown that sun and moon alignments are a central part, and geometry are a central part of understanding the megalithic mind. And unless you get into that, you'll never really know what they were thinking and what they were, you know what they were doing, you think, but you don't know why they were doing it. And there's a hell of a lot to learn, and I'm running out of runway for my life, and I want to make sure that some people, younger than I, see the potential for solving this. So you go to Karnak, and you just get mind blown. By the alignments there. How many people here have been to Carnac? Would you agree? Did you go on that silly Disneyland train?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> Do you know that the, the insult the people who made this by driving everyone around on a white and gold train that they got from Disneyland Paris in little carriages with a man giving a dialogue to people. And it, it's like blocks all the traffic and it goes on and it goes and it's just so naff. Only the French... Could treat their biggest prehistoric monument in such a naff way. And because and, I lived in France, I'm able to say that in French to them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and like all true
1: Frenchmen, you're not friends with the Frenchmen until you've insulted them. You have to try it sometime, but preferably when you've got friends with you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I want to tell you to one side it's absolutely proving that, that triangle that we've just been discussing absolutely shows what was going on and the beauty of this site is it's very very old. It's right at the beginning of the megalithic building period. So just down the road from here, less than a mile, is Cacado Tumulus. It's a great big tumulus. You can go in it and there's a stone circle around it and it's dated archaeologically at 5000 BC. Don't come much older than that, anyway. And this is a refined tumulus Dolmen, well built, dry stone walls inside, not a hint of damp in it. Uh, carvings, stone circle around the outside, and this is just the other side of a small river valley. It's the Giron is one of the largest megaliths in in Brittany, and the quadrilater is a, is, a, is, a, is a, as it sounds, it's a quadrilateral. There's the Giron. Now I stand that high, and I can uh, that is the reference mark for my theodolite, and I can just about reach that so it's it's actually about fourteen or fifteen feet high. No, it's that one I can reach. that's the one I reach. so that's me arms men, so it's much, it's much bigger than fourteen feet, isn't it? Mm. Um, well anyway it's, it's in the
2: book
1: <laughs> 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 It pays not to know too much <laughs> so there's the quadrilateral. there's a clue it's got four sides now. Work previously done on the site by a chap called Howard Crowers has shown that there are the many of the huge site, but in the woods is a huge pregnant woman's stone. You can't possibly not think of it as feminine. I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. And then at the right hand of this peculiar arrangement there's a square stone. You look at it on the ground it just looks like it's come out of it's a paving slab but much thicker. The interesting thing is if we go back that at the equinox, the sun shines on the menu, which let's remind ourselves is a, is a very large and peculiarly erect object.
2: <laughs> <laughs> at the
1: equinox, we're all grown ups here, we can talk about such things.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: and it shines on the damn domain. Last, last equinox, we, we were there, and I and my brother and, uh, were there to, to, to be there for that conference and watch that. Um, so that's. Interesting, and then at summer solstice it shines on the Pierre Cafe for reasons of the three, four, five geometry that I talked about earlier. And then at the winter solstice, the sunrise shines through these two stones that look remarkably like a vulva. Um, and so you've got midwinter solstice where the sun is shining. This the shadow of this falls on onto that point there, and then it falls at the equinox on the dam and Pierre Caroy, and there is a nine-month period between the equinox, spring equinox and the mid-winter period, and I, this is obviously very clearly symbolically important on this site. Now, these have all been measured very accurately with the theodolite, and the French, because they use metres, failed to see that these were all whole numbers of megalithic yards. They didn't see this was a 30, 40, 50 megalithic yard Triangle, all of these were 65, 60, 65. It's not their fault, they've got a bum metrology. Their, me- their meter doesn't fit the prehistoric units of land. So let's have a look at the quadrilateral. It was the first plan ever drawn of the quadrilateral with any accuracy. No archaeologists ever done the survey of it. Uh, Alexander Tom had three days to do the whole of Karnak on his first trip, so he just does a sketch in the book. But for the first time it's, I'm happy that although the width of those stones is not particularly accurately surveyed. Each particular stone is now marked and numbered, and I'm quite sure that to within an inch or two, this plan is accurate. It took us four days, my brother and I, with A by Trish, in the sometimes difficult weather. Equinox is not particularly noted for wonderful weather. It's an interesting shape. Uh, this bit, end at the end, has a particular meaning, but I'm here to tell you some really exciting news. And you're the first audience I've ever discussed this with. I had to get permission from my brother <laughs> to tell you this. I went there with Paul Broadhurst first because I recognised that a do was run by this guy Howard Kroberts, That the theodolite along this line, um, if I t- I set it up for him, um, a part of a, a large group at an equinox, and um, when I swivelled the theodolite round, I noticed that there was that the angle you're looking for in a lunation triangle, that's the three by twelve, it was fourteen degrees. And I noticed I swiveled the stone by around about 40 degrees. It went past this stone here, and across a groove on the stone here. And I came back with Paul and his girlfriend later with a tape measure. And from that, my brother and I have really gone, we've dived straight into this. is the most important site I've ever discovered, or ever worked on. There's two places on this site. There's the vulva-shaped stone. Now, I haven't, I don't think I've got a photo of that. I hope so I have, but it might not be. But anyway, there's two stones, and they come up, like the inside comes up like that. And they're about that tall. And and they sit in the middle of the row. They are the largest stones in the whole of the row. Uh, in fact, they're the largest stone on the site. Um, and you've got clearly a, a, di- a four-to-one relationship if you pace it out. So I thought it was worth doing a full measurement. The Midsummer Sunrise occurs at the angle shown, and the minor moonrise occurs up, up uh, here somewhere. Uh, no, it's down the other way. I don't know what that's doing. Oh, from stone Stonehill is four miles away, and it it makes a minor moonrise. Now, I don't. Need, you don't need to get all technical about that. You have to read Alexander Toms book or the website for details about that. What I'm concerned about is that at this angle here is a midsummer sunrise. And there are two lines that you can draw. You can go from where the midwinter shadow falls, or you can go back on this sort of sparsely stoned extension to the actual corner of the quadrilateral and run another line which is exactly parallel. When you put a tape measure up there, this one measures 91, inches, 91 feet and 5 inches. So what, you say? And why are you measuring in inches? Well, it's, it's a ducement... Carbon fiber tape measure, a very good one. No like Stanley, it's not used any more. It's a Stanley tape, measure, carbon fiber. It's very accurate, and it's it's in inches on one side, it's in metric on the other. I'm not going to use metric because these guys, as you will learn, were far more into what we're into, were into before the metrication. Not quite true, but very 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 close to approximately true. So here's two lines. That one's 91 foot five inches, and this one. Here's 121 feet, 9 inches. And if you get your calculators out, which my lectures is often a good idea, you'll find out that they're in the ratio 3 to 4. Exactly. Not nearly, exactly. So what's going on? And there's the right angle, the, the triangle. Do You see this stone here, the carved, carved edge to mark the line of the stones? Five thousand BC, pretty good, eh? That one that stone there has been put there lately, we know where that, that one came from, and it's not partly original. it's just been stuck there. And the tallest stones are there those that you can just see the top of them there. This is not the biggest stone, it just it's nearer. Right, there's the ninety one foot four inches, shorter diagonal, 1096 inches, days in three years, thousand and ninety six. Whoops. The other one, 121 feet, 9 inches. That's 121. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 inches. That's the red surveying pin. Don't fiddle this. These pins have gone in before the tape measure. and These have been based on the geometry of it. Days in four years, 1461 days. 121 feet, 9 inches, 1461 inches. So if three and four years counted in inches, and the same inches that you and I can quite easily go to what was Woolworths and buy a plastic ruler with inches on. That's a 7,000 year use of the same unit. It hasn't changed. What's going on there? Another question. So we found at this site, or what we believe we found, it's very hard not to uh, think that they actually were measuring three and four years. Why would we do that? Well, three years is a repeat moon. There's 12 and a third moons in a year. After three years, that third accrues, so you get 37 full moons in three years. It's the first repeat cycle of the sun and moon. Four years is good because monitoring the four years, you get the quarter day emerges because the sunrise changes every year because of that quarter day. And after four years, that accrues, so you get 366 days in the year. We call it a leap year day. You see it as the the sun every every year being a little bit different in its way it rises. You're with me on that. Astronomically, what you see, that quarter day has to be found somewhere. Days don't come in quarters. The sun doesn't rise for a quarter of a day and then go away. Have a holiday. Days come in quarter of one. You can only have 365 or 366 in a year. And if you keep counting the number of days between a repeated sun, sunrise, you're going to find 365 for three years, and then there's going to be an extra count, because those quarter days under. And four years of the time to do it. So this is intensely intelligent. And furthermore, there's other things going on at the a little groove here, where you would put a rope if you were going to tie a rope, there's a groove in this stand. It's nine megalithic yards from there, and that also has to be nine megalithic yards from here. So it's the same distance from Q' to R as it is from R to G. And, of course, if this is an illumination triangle, and that's 12, and that's 3, you do the and you find out that 9 megalithic yards should be the length of that, if you're using the inch. So everything is, it's, this, this fits beautifully. It's almost like finding a working observatory that's complete, hasn't been wrecked by anybody, that no archaeologist has analysed, it's like being given a moneyless cane and get on with it. You're the first people to see these photos. I hope that, that's nice for you. <laughs> now I wasn't I was not sure how long I had to talk today, so I thought I'd put this little tag on the end to show other things that are going on in this country. We'll come back to Anglesey now. And Brim Kehley one of my favourite sites. Now Brim is on Anglesey and it's been restored, but the passage angle was measured before it was restored. That's what it looked like. There are loads of thick savages who couldn't do anything, really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they have this thing that looks like a sort of German sausage, a bank and ditch, and, uh, uh, and put some stones meaninglessly in, the, in there, it, with no function, no role, really. Um, and then there's Armour Row, which is to the east, which is almost identical, um, with all the stones are now flattened. And, um, but we kept there to later day, They built this big lump on the top of the passage. But the point is, they're just two minutes of latitude of the same, <coughs> the same latitude. So they're east west of one another. And when you look at this, and look at it with Stonehenge, you end up with this wonderful three, four, five arrangement, a rectangle on a landscape, which is impressively accurate. There's other evidence which suggests that it's something real about this, it's not just a figment of my imagination. The first is that oh, well, Arbolo is two minutes, uh, two. Uh, degrees of latitude from Stonehenge. Uh, the second is that More Point in Devon um, then goes across to the Arthur Stone, and about 15 sites on this line are all got Arth or, or, or Merlin in their name. There's a whole set. This is in the book I wrote. This is the book I wrote with Paul Broaders, The Secret Land. And There's actually a, a graph given of, of connection Um, and it's in my book, plug number 6 or so (laughs) now when we look at this the angle here, the 53 degree angle of the 345 triangle just happens to be the angle of the sunrise at this latitude but only at the raised horizon of Brink TV there's a bank and you have to be there of course but look this is getting quite cheeky isn't it so at that side there at this latitude the sun at midsummer, if you've got about two degree rise in the horizon you build, choose the side along this line then the sun rises at that angle up so there the latitude on the earth is the same angle that's quite clever latitude of is that Angle of Passage, measured, that. Sunrise angle, measured, that. Angle of the 345 to Stonehenge, that. Now, this is really confirming Professor Tom's work. This is not my own work, but it basically, you know, he led the way in suggesting this, the importance of this. And then we read, for the only course in Britain that does archaeoastronomy, it says, in the course, the BA in Archaeoastronomy, we do not consider the work of Alexander Tom, Partly because the subject is a very technical one, and partly because many of the issues are no longer of archaeological interest. And it's the same man writing it. So every student who goes to University to study the BA in Archaeoastronomy, that's the first thing they see. Now I say to you, look, if the set of coincidences here, how many coincidences do you have to have before they stop being coincidences And it starts to be human intent to have put and erected these monuments in this formation around the country. Even the measuring system is similar. There's 5 times 3, 12 times 3, 13 times 3, and these are the same units of length. So we're finding here exactly what Chris has found in London, which is that geodetics and the use of landscape in order to either survey to commemorate, to make sacred, to bring out features, or even to influence the people living in these shapes. Because we can't ignore that one. You walk into those 13 trees in Green Park, and it's like Central London disappears. It's like walking into the TARDIS. You shut the door, Central London vanishes. There's quite a few places in cities where you can do that. And then nearly all of it, geometrically. in the middle of Oxford, it's Brazenose College Garden which is a druidic garden. You've got holly and new trees, saracide, you've got all sorts of druidic symbolism in, in the grounds of Brazenose County, Oxford. Now, I don't need to convince you of anything. I'm just reporting what I find, which is a good maxim in life. So I'm hoping I'm giving you some food for thought. You know, the thing is, you find these same things cropping up. Any researcher getting involved in this, who is, oh, I, I'm not completely gullible, I might be gullible, but I'm not completely gullible. I have a scientific background. <coughs> That's the bit I do. So, here we have the first two Pathfinderian triangles of the Set on the landscape of Britain, and you have a whole set of Arthur lines running up this one. In fact, London is the only place in Britain where um, Arthur, well, one of two places that Geoffrey Ash reckons Arthur really was buried if there was an Arthur. Of course, <coughs> Arthur could be a concept, rather than a living human being. Let's return to the other place where Arthur and Merlin are repeated to be buried. It's the only place where both of them are. This is a view from Lekha Dribeth, which is that site we just started with. Remember the one with the sun shining through it? Right, there's Barnsley Island, and here's the mountains and the Hymn Peninsula, which look like islands because of course the earth's curved, which might again go some way to answering the questions about how did they know how big the earth was, because the amount by which those islands and mountains disappear tells you something about the radius of the Earth. There's the bathyodolite set up from near Be- Lecajureveth to um, Barzi Island, and it's at 0 degrees. In other words, it's pointing north. Not magnetic north, north, real north. The sort of north that the whole planet's rotating around. As the winter comes on now, you'll see the plough come down in the early evening, more and more and you look at the, its back, back legs and you'd see the false stop. Well there's north, and there, right next to Bechandry Beth, is a, a house called Nym, which is Welsh for lime. You don't know why, of course. The only doesn't have a clue why it's called lime. And there's a trim point almost in his front garden, buried in a hedge. And then, calm you know heavy that's the place where we show, those outcrops were. There's another trick point, which the Ordnance Survey in the 1850s or 60s used to define a, a long 15-odd, 3-mile line north-south for the traverse they did of the British Isles, which ended up in those lovely maps that are now being desecrated by the Ordnance Survey because they're removing the churches and they're removing lots of things that I actually think should stay on maps. I navigated through up to 07 this morning from the church spire, and if it's not on the map, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. Um, So, there's a dead north line. But these Ormond survey pieces were 5,000 years after the people who built Lekkerdribeth. Because just here, and just here, again arranged in a north-south line, is Pentreevan, and there's a view from Pentreevan to Lekkerdribeth. And there's Bartsey Island. And so you've got within a quarter of a degree of true north and that can't, you feel that can't be an accident, furthermore that can is built right on the uh, top of the the horizon if you like because you can't see from ben you can't see that this connects you over the top of a rise which makes it possible to connect the two points together so this looks like megalithic surveying of North was going on certainly around three, this is 3500 BC and the capstone almost points north it doesn't quite, but it may have moved and it, and it may never have been intended to be part of, of whatever this is about but there, the monument that monument, and Barsi Island form a 53 mile north-south alignment we go west from Pantry, though. there's a very noticeable <coughs> cliff and a part of rocks can is our sacred mountain I mean, it's a it, goddess people go mad for it they're up there all the time dreaming there and sleeping there and getting up to no end of interesting things up there um, and it's quest and that, that that actually believe it or not that when you get up there that is that lump there there's a platform on the top there which is on the left. been interested in that for years I've taken groups up there and I use that point from I'm well, with the Theodolite in order to set up an angle it's my reference point in the middle of there is Nevin Castle. So we've got north of Pentry one is a Beth and Timothar, west is Carnind Peak, and in between the two, at an equal angle, is Nevin Castle. That angle can be measured. And there's the point on Nevin Castle, which is a very interesting bump. <coughs> with beech trees on that have since been felled by the archaeologists at Durham University. Uh, that's been entirely dug out since this photo was taken <coughs> a year ago. So chainsaws have been in, completely dug it out in the interests of archaeology and ruin, what to me might be one of the most important prehistoric sites we've got for reasons that will be apparent. Uh, there's another stone that's local and that's our biggest standing stone. Uh, but interestingly, it's got a spring-fed pond around it with waterweed in it and pond life so this is not this is permanently got water in it so you've got a, a, an eight foot high above ground megalith stuck in a it basically what amounts to a well on a moor that's unusual isn't it the symbolism of that one to escape some of you <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: the, the only other place I know where that happens in Wales is Colney Island where the monks have got a well where they've stuck an eight foot mon- monolith in a stone well a circular stone well in the garden. So, Wine uh, Mountain line is well to PT track, so you can guess what the track's like that you go to to get here. Right, so there's there's a, it's a lot, one of the largest standing stones in the region. It probably has another three foot underground, making that about I guess twelve foot stone. That takes an equal position south of the rest of these sites. So we get two effectively equilateral triangles. And of course it's possible for me to survey these, because they're not that far apart. The distance apart is about just over two miles, each one of these. So the task is, how do you do an accurate surveying and get the lengths? And why is this here on the landscape? This is a natural feature, the platform isn't, it's a Bronze Age fort. But you know, it would be still west if it was 100 feet from the Bronze Age fort. Hentryland is a man-made. Nevin Castle is certainly man-made, and why man wasn't placed there? It's the only stone for half a mile around. You know, it's a big and it's right there, and it's exactly placed correctly. So you do a bit of judary poetry with the, the old surveying, and, and you measure the distances. Now, we won't go into a lot of numbers today, but look, there's the letter all about 11,766 feet, and they all fit in that line there. Okay, They all fit in that line there, from no feet. So you come to the end and they're all in that range. So there's half a percent difference in all those five points. That's not an accident. You'd be hard-pressed, especially with FE students who completed three years of higher-tech surveying. They'd be hard-pressed to even match that, over rough territory. So either we bring in aliens, or some form of higher intelligence, or we assume that human beings were as intelligent as us in the extreme historic period, and they just actually loved doing this sort of thing, and they got it right. And we haven't got a clue how they got it back. I like that one better, because it doesn't bring in other than human and it gives us credit for, as a species for having done it. So this is very, very precision surveying. Range 140 feet, that's the range is in eleven thousand. So within that two point two miles is hundred and forty feet, is the maximum error. And it makes a vesica, of course. Country around Carningley, no castle wine, man, makes a vesica. Okay. What is the what is the legend history of this area? Well, Carningley is Angel Mountain. It's where St. Brinette was ministered to by angels. Now, he's before the Catholics got hold of the Christian faith and shook it by the neck. <laughs> it's it's pre-Celtic it's Christian stuff. Um, and this area also is an incredible number of people who've shaped or caused the birth of the New Age have lived there. The founder of self-sufficiency, or the one to whom the crown has been given, by historical precedent is John John Seymour. You've all seen the book. John and Sonny Seymour. Practical Self-Sufficiency. Right, where did John live? Ireland. Well, he lived in Ireland when he was in his late 80s. He wasn't doing any self-sufficiency much then. But before then, where did he live? Have you read his books? (laughs) (laughs) Cumberbale. and Bill.
2: Okay.
1: Well, John came from Essex with a vision, in 1964, from Suffolk, he drove a massive Ferguson tractor 300 miles from
2: Suffolk,
1: with <laughs> a on the back, and he bought a house exactly there,
2: <laughs> exactly
1: there, and within a few years, he had a neighbour who lived here, Satish Kumar,
2: <laughs>
1: right, and Chris Day, the architect, who's gone and made a fortune in California with Radical New Age architecture for children, schools, and all of that. He lived here and still has a house here. Okay? And um, this area has spawned more artists, writers, musicians of note than almost any other part. This is where it all goes on in the area of West Wales where I live. Now, I'm not trying to make that up, but I have to accept that it is true. And this is the sacred mountain, and this is a vesica, whose Geometric property is the generator of birth. It's the birth and I don't need to explain why that shape has got anything to do with birth. There's the stone in John's farmhouse. I went in there not knowing quite where I was going, put my GPS on top of that stone to get a first go of where, where we were, and I didn't have to move it. That was the place. That stone was the place. I couldn't believe it. I kept saying, I think this is wrong. I don't think this is wrong. This is where I want to be. This is where the theory says I should be. But why is that reading that? There. Oh. Oh, yeah. Right. I'm there. There it is. And interestingly, a chap who knows nothing of geodetics at all saw the stone lying flat a couple of years ago and decided it would look nice to put up. I've never had a conversation with this guy until this summer. There's the stone at the Church, Nevin Cross. This is the ferryman where he saw the people dancing. There's a platform there, and I just want you to know that Dr. Chris Cope of Durham University is responsible for completely mangling it in order to prove it might be medieval. But then we we know that vesicles are found at Glastonbury, another place that's been responsible for the New Age movement. In fact, John michel proposed propose this. Uh, shape in his very first book on the subject um, in The View Over Atlantis, where he proposed that the market cross, there's a market cross, that's the cross in Neven at the top, that's there, Okay, that cross is there, it's the biggest bluestone in Wales, it's been carved by Vikings since, and it's had a Christian bit stuck on the top as an extra piece, but it's effectively a market cross got a fish pond here and at Wine Man we've got a stone in a pond ok, we've got the Roman Catholic church there, and upon this rock shall I set my church, Carningley is quite clearly a sort of um, a rock, and, uh, but it's not a Catholic rock, but there's the RC church in, um, in Glastonbury, and there's the, the abbey uh, the biggest sort of monument is is our biggest monument I, I draw parallels I, you, I play with these things Here's a a similar shape. Glastonbury started, effectively, the New Age in in Britain. It's the town that you associate with, it, not it? That will be no exaggeration. There's a bit of fun here. almondry. That's a a, a name for an almshouse in the Middle Ages. But it's a bit of monkish nonsense, that. It's very clever. Because the Latin name for the vesica is mandora, which is an almond. And they've used that there to tell people something about almon, the, the word that, for the almshouse or where you help people. By call, that's called the almond. I'm sure that that's a deliberate, you know, look here. This is this is this might have something to do with, with almonds. Uh, and there it is, right at the centre. So there's Pen, I see that as pantry run equivalent. The Roman Catholic Church I see as the rock of the Capricornian rock of Carl Um and there's the fish pond with the stone and there's the market cross. So we can finish this lecture before we have a few questions by saying the implications of this are huge. I think I actually had a slide. There we are. It does flip through. Here's some conclusions I'd like you to go away with. Here's the conclusions. We have misunderstood the capabilities and priorities of megalithic culture and the continuity of use of their units of length and their geometric construction. I think I've proved that this afternoon to you, that it is well worth investigating the units of length and the nature of their geometric construction, why they were doing it. Sacred landscape means what it says on the tin. I knew when I saw a Christmas speaking, I wouldn't need to elaborate on that. Uh, to understand the megalithic culture, one must understand astronomy and geometry. That's the bit that's missing from the archaeological input at university. Archaeologists don't have to have any maths anymore. I mean, it no one has to talk maths anymore apparently bankers obviously don't <laughs> uh,
2: here's
1: a, here's, this is a belief now but it's one based on experience and so I suppose it's more than that powerful geometric shapes between sides invoke appropriate changes to the consciousnesses of those living within that shape right, we're all happy with that we're dowsers, aren't we the Celtic Christian Church clearly employed the vesica and the fish in the cross as the prime symbols of their new religion. But those symbols I've shown come go back to three thousand five hundred BC at least in just in the within twelve miles of my mile front door. As I've shown you. And the Welsh legends, I mean the meaning of the Priscelli Vesica is a womb, birth of Tony Essin, and there's all these legends connecting the Priscellis with Anun's entry into the other world and and that's for another lecture and another speaker, probably. not my specialty. So I believe that what the way my work is shaping, and I'm working with my brother at the moment. Here's 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 the here's the, the bottom line, here's the rub if you like. This is heady stuff. But but it's not going to get acceptance into the mainstream, because we've tried, by sending reports to archaeological magazines. But A lot of what I've talked to you today, like the units of length and the geometries, show something, and the surveying, show something much more relevant to subjects like the history of science. So my proposal, and my brother's agreed on this, is that we completely bypass archaeologists. Alexander Tom wrote wonderful books, they're very hard to read, but he was writing for people to pick up the subject and run with it. He wasn't writing a popular book. But he failed utterly. If a professor from Bray's really well qualified, can't uh, make any uh, headway, then you know it's the wrong direction. So this has got to go through another branch of science to be evaluated, and that's where we're going next to it. In parallel with that, we've worked with Paul, I worked with Paul Broadhurst for a number of years on his big book, The Secret Lab. And we find that Cornwall and Wales are connected across the Bristol Channel with geometry. There's an awful... For example, St. Clair's in in Cornwall is directly south of St. Clair's in Pembrokeshire. Mm -hmm. Lambstaffan in Pembrokeshire is directly north of um, Launston, which is Lambstaffan in Cornwall. And um, there are other examples of that. And if you look at the way they come, they all make a point at Dunster. Which they might very well make because that's on the stonehenge London line. It's, you need to look at that on maps. If you like doodling on maps, then, then that, that's a good thing for you. That's a good place to start. So I believe that there's a lot of stuff in Cornwall is reflected in Wales. And that this work is available to everybody. I mean, there's nothing to stop anybody making a contribution to this. And I can't get around all the sites. Now they can pull. So here's an amazing opportunity. Okay,
2: good.
1: I think Robin, we've got to let you go anyway. Yeah. Okay. Let's get you back. Well, well again, I look
0: forward to coming again. Yeah, you've been great, Robin. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Robin for such a wonderful talk and for letting us record for the podcast. Robin's website can be found at skyandlandscape.com and landscape.com And as usual, I'll put a link to that on the show page and also a note of those three articles that are well worth looking out. Adventures in Dowsing comes from the British Society of Dowsers in Hanley Swan, England. For more details about this society and find out how we can help you get more out of your dowsing, please see our website at BritishDowsers.org. Tell us your archaeoastronomy stories, ask us a question, or just let us know what you think of the show by emailing podcast at BritishDowsers.org. You can also post messages on our forum and you can also find us on Facebook. So thanks for listening. Many thanks as always to Hilary Brooks for the music and be sure to join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.